All right, so good morning, everybody. I'm going to catch my breath a little bit before I ramp back up. So earlier this year, Pastor Jimmy preached. Uh, he's, the, he's the person today not doing anything. So earlier this year, Pastor Jimmy, I'm kidding, <laughs> taking notes. Uh, budget season's coming up. So earlier uh, this year, Pastor Jimmy preached through the Beatitudes this summer. You may remember that. I hope you do. It wasn't that long ago. And this morning, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be looking at another section of the Sermon on the Mount. But I think we're going to be in Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Matthew 6, 19 through 34. It'll be on the screen. Um, but I want to kind of set the scene just a little bit for us before we get into this passage. And I will say that um, when you're reading Matthew, which is the first gospel in your Bibles, it's the first gospel that a lot of people read. Um, and it's been structured that way pretty much since the beginning of the canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this section of the Sermon on the Mount is really the first extended teaching we get from Jesus. Okay, this is a really important. The Beatitudes are kind of the preamble um, of it and set the, set the stage. Um, but I want us to understand what we're getting into. And I would caution us that what we're going to read today are really familiar words, or they should be familiar to you. You've probably heard the words that we're going to read and look at today many times. And so I would just caution you the way that I do myself, that just because we've heard these words many times, um, we have to be careful not to assume we know what they mean, or that we let familiarity breed contempt, as the old saying goes. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. We must treat them as such. So if you look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to look at all Matthew 5 through 7, and you're going to go, what does it have to do with? What is it about? You're going to see kind of this theme. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, centered around the idea that holy character manifested in righteous or right behavior demonstrates something. So when I say holy character, when I'm talking about character, what, am I, what kind of things am I talking about? What is character? Your intentions, okay. What's character? Okay, how you act or how you represent yourself, and that is the behavior side of it, right? And that has to do with this, but what is character? Jimmy always says something about character. Do you want to tell him what you say? Character is... Yes. Yep, reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. The character is who you are on the inside. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this idea that God, and throughout Scripture, that God is, should be changing our character. God should be changing us on the inside. If you are a believer, if you are born again, God should be doing a work inside of you. He should be changing you to make you more and more like his son. He should be sanctifying you. He should be making you more holy. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect or you're holier than thou. You don't go around saying, hey, I'm better because I'm a Christian. But God, there should be a change in your character. If your character is the exact same when you first get saved to 40 years later, there's a problem. God should be working in your character. And the idea of the Sermon on the Mount is that this character that God is sanctifying and making holy, it should have an output. It should flow into right behavior, righteous behavior. But let me ask this question. Can non-Christians exhibit righteous behavior? Yeah, anybody can do the right thing. But the question is, what is the source? What is the motivation, right? What is the intention of that behavior? 
for us Christians, it should, it should flow out of this holy character that God is building in us. And this holy character that leads to this righteous behavior, right behavior, it shows the world two things. It shows the world your relationship with God. It's just a sign to the world that I'm a Christian, okay? It shows the world your relationship with God, but it also shows the world that you're participating in his kingdom, okay? So you're not on the sideline, right? I'm not going to talk about the Aggie game yesterday. Yeah, it was rough. Yep. Um, but it seemed like maybe there's some guys on the sidelines. Maybe some of those guys never got on the field. Well, you don't want to be a Christian who goes through your entire life and it just stays on the sidelines. You're supposed to get up on the field. You're supposed to participate in the kingdom of God. So another way to, to say this is that the Sermon on the Mount is focused on doing the right things for the right reasons. It's about doing the right things for the right reasons. It's not it's less about doing good in the world purely to do good things, although there's nothing wrong with that. But it's more of just, if you're following God, if God is changing your character, you can't help but exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. You can't help but live righteously, right? The, the root, I'm sorry, the fruit is based on the root, okay? If your root is rooted in Jesus, then you will produce fruit. So, because of this, the Sermon on the Mount is a few things. It should kind of do two things to us at once when we read it. It is aspirational. It's something we're supposed to aspire to. It's something we're supposed to strive for. You can read what Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and you could be like, well, I mean, can any Christian really do that? But this is what Jesus is commanding us. He's, he's teaching his disciples, and then through them to us. It's something we should aspire and strive to. But it's also indicative. It also shows us where we are, Okay or how far away we are from where we want to be. So in a sense, it's like a GPS. I found the oldest GPS picture I could find. Uh, yeah, this is Jimmy's. I don't know if you know, but Jimmy was an Eagle, is an Eagle Scout. It's like a Marine, always, a, always an Eagle Scout. So a GPS, if you think about it, it shows you where you are, right? But it also shows you how far you are, where you want to be, okay? So it's, it's indicative of where you are, but it's also aspirational. It shows you where you want to be. So, again, if we, the Sermon on the Mount should do a couple things. It should motivate us, okay? It should be a motivating factor. We should want to live this way. We, we should want to live out the commands of Jesus. But it should also convict us, all right? Because none of us are there. I don't think any of us are there. I know I'm not there. Um, I, know, so I know some of y'all are not, for sure. <laughs> I'm not going to... I'm not going to name any names, <clears throat> Ronnie, but other, you know. So if what comes next, if what we're going to read, if it doesn't do either of those two things, if it doesn't motivate you or if it doesn't convict you, something's wrong. Now, it could be my fault. It could be that I'm a, um, a not a good deliverer of God's word. That is possible. See, you missed my music, but you can't miss the preaching because I'm preaching. That's right. So it should, be, it should motivate us and convict us. Now, but if it doesn't do either of those two things... Something's wrong. And the chances are that something's wrong with us, not just me. Because even if I just read Matthew 6, 19 through 34, I don't know if some of y'all are going, could you start that already? Right? It's a long intro. A, would be at, we'd be out pretty soon. But also, even just reading it should motivate you and convict you. So even if I'm a poor deliverer of his word, which I might be, it should still do that. Let's, let's go ahead and pause right here and let's pray for that. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray... This morning, as we read your word, I pray that 
you will motivate us, that you will convict us, that you will speak to us, that you will say to us whatever you want to say. Father, and I just pray against any kind of spirit of familiarity or pride or ego. Father, I pray that you remove those things from me, remove those things from us, so that as we look at your word, Father, we can come to it and we can hear it the same way your disciples heard it all the way ago, all, all that time ago. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're actually going to look at it. I appreciate those praying with me. Somebody speaking in tongues. There we go. Matthew six nineteen. There you go. It says, Jesus says this, Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead of accumulate for yourselves treasures in where? Where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. So notice right off the bat, there's this giant either-or distinction that Jesus has. He's saying, don't do this, instead do that. Either we are accumulating for ourselves treasures on earth, or we are accumulating, actively accumulating treasures in heaven. All right? We can't be doing both at the same time, and I'll, I'll talk more about this. Now, before we dismiss this, you could dismiss this because you go, I'm, I'm not rich. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. This isn't talking about me. Well, one, um, like a billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. Amen. Every one of us is rich. And I'm not trying to downplay any struggles that you have or financial difficulties you've overcome. But we're all rich. You can ask Jeff. He just went to Kenya about the standards of living over there and the standards of living over here. We're a rich country, blessed by God, and we are rich people. Um, also, think about who, who, is he, who is he specifically talking to right now? Who is he preaching to? Who, who is the Sermon on the Mount directly addressed to? Who's he talking to? Yeah, but who are the people in the audience? That's a good, that's somebody who wants gold stars. So he's speaking to his disciples, and there are people that hear him, okay? The crowds hear him. But if you look at the beginning of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, he's specifically talking to his disciples. Now, what, what jobs did the disciples have? I know Matthew was a tax collector, so he might have had some scratch. But what were the rest of them? Yeah, most of them were fishermen. And regardless of what jobs they had, they left all those, remember? To follow Jesus around. Uh, Jesus said the, the foxes have holes, the birds of the nest have... Uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Even if they weren't poor before following Jesus, they're definitely poor now. So Jesus is talking to them. He's talking to people who are poor, and he's telling them not to accumulate treasures in heaven. Okay? Uh, so the sin of materialism is not just relegated to the wealthy. Even the poor can be materialistic. So let's talk about treasures, all right? Because the first thing that we default to if we hear the word treasure, what do you think? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Money, right? Gold for Jimmy. I don't know about you, but he always gets his dollars exchanged into gold bars, right? He's got half of one, so he's, he's taking a long time to get that gold bar. Okay, so treasures, they include status, I don't know anything about this, but some people, they would rather have status than money. You know how I know this? Because there are people who are going bankrupt so that they can look at a certain way, so they can drive a certain car, so they can have a certain house. If they want to look a certain way. They want status. They want people to see them as something. But in reality, they're poorer sometimes than the rest of us. Sometimes they're accumulating not money, 
but they're exchanging that money for status. They want status. That could be a treasure. Possessions. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the average American household has 300,000 individual items in it. The average American household has three. Somebody said amen. We got a hoarder over here. So we got the average American household. Somebody says that's less. I thought it'd be higher. 300,000 individual things in it. And you could probably live without what? Like 299,000 of them, right? Individual things in it. Sometimes your treasure is possessions. It's just stuff. All right? Um, Sometimes it's comfort. Now, you might not think about, oh, that's not a treasure. But you think about how much of our society, how much of the things we buy or the time we spend is to try and make ourselves comfortable. Right? Try to make ourselves comfortable. The AC goes, in your, goes out in your house. And you're like, uh-uh. I'm not living the way my grandfathers did. I need this back stat. Right? We have so much of our world is about being comfortable. That could be your treasure. And then obviously, you've got actual money. I don't mean to diminish that. Some people are wanting to stockpile money as a, as a treasure. And this, this is my struggle, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, about preaching this message. Um, this is something that a preaching professor is not going to say to do. But this is just my challenge, and I'm just going to be upfront about it. My challenge in preaching this is how can I get you, me first, but how can I get us to feel our own materialism? How can I get us to kind of sit in it and soak in it and realize that we are all too materialistic? All of, my, all of us should feel motivated and convicted by this, okay? Even if you don't have money, what are your treasures? Is it status? Is it possessions? Is it comfort? Is it something I haven't even mentioned? Craig Keener, he's a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he, he's written some really good um, commentaries. He says this. I'm going to paraphrase it. North American Christians pour nearly a billion dollars a year into new church construction. North American Christians pour nearly a billion dollars a year into new church construction. Now, church buildings are helpful tools in our culture, but the early church did without them. Where did the early church meet? People's houses. They didn't build church buildings. And the Bible expressly commands serving the poor. Second century pagans, if you read the writings of some of these second centuries, so we're talking 100 uh, to 200 AD, second century pagans continually noted Christians' charity toward both Christian and non-Christian poor. That was the first thing that they really noticed about Christians. They said they're generous to all these people, not just themselves. Church buildings are valuable, but when they take precedence over caring for the poor or evangelism, or evangelism, our priorities appear to focus more on our comfort, this is one of our treasures, than on the world's need, as if we desire padded pews more than new brothers and sisters feeling the kingdom of God. As if we desire padded pews more than new brothers and sisters filling the kingdom of God. This is something we have to wrestle with. All of us. I remember when I was a teenager, <clears throat> I had a friend who worked at a bigger church. I'm not going to say which church. It's a good church. And they were building a new building. And he, he snuck me and my brother in to just kind of see the construction. And I remember we went to the new sanctuary. And they had this kind of, uh, they were just building it. Um, and there was this huge space. And he said, in that, in that space where that, 
that you see in the sanctuary, that is going to be a new pipe organ. And that pipe organ is going to cost $100,000. And I remember thinking, now, now again, I, I'm not saying, I'm not putting judgment on, on him or that church, but I just remember the tone with which he said it was this pride. It's going to be, and it, you know, I'm sure it's beautiful. But to spend a hundred grand on an organ that you're going to use, what? Once a week, maybe? It's just hard to swallow. To pour a billion dollars into new construction of church buildings when we have people that are really suffering. It's, let's just not dismiss it. So this is the question that I have for you. If do not accumulate, if the command from Jesus to not accumulate meant that you had to give away all your possessions, the, all 300,000 of them, would you do it? It's rhetorical. Think about it. If I came to you this morning and convinced you through the study of Scripture, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if I convinced you that this is Jesus' command for all of us, or even if you were convicted, even if I didn't say that for everybody, but you went home and you felt convicted after this, that Jesus wanted you to give away all your things, could you, would you do it? And you might say, well, that's kind of a ridiculous hypothetical. But Jesus actually asked somebody to do this. Do you remember? Who did he ask to do this? The rich young ruler, remember? The rich young ruler comes up and he said, hey, I've done all these things. I've followed the law. What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you, you're lacking one thing. You're missing one thing. Jesus looked at him. He felt love for him, the rich young ruler. And he said, you lack one thing. Go, sell whatever you have. And what is he supposed to do with the money? Give the money to the poor. Here, here's the, uh, what is the difficulty? What is the struggle with giving the money to the poor? They may waste it. What does Jesus say about the poor? It's always going to be there. It's not fixing, quote unquote, anything. It's not like we can give a certain amount of money and then the, the problem of poverty is gone. Jesus says the poor will always be with you, and yet we're commanded to give to the poor. He says, go sell whatever you have, give the money to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure where? In heaven. Then come and follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad, and he went away sorrowful. Why? He's rich. He's a rich dude. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at these words. Why were the disciples astonished at these words? In their culture, they associated worldly, worldly wealth with God's blessing. So to them, rich people were like really good people. I know that's kind of flipped in our world today a little bit, but in their time, if they saw a rich, wealthy person, they would say, God's blessed that man. That man is a good, righteous man. That's why he has so much money. So when Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he's saying even the good people have a hard time getting in. So the disciples are astonished. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished. And they looked at each other and said, well, who, who's gonna, who can be saved? If even the best of us, if it's impo- it seems like it's impossible, a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Jesus looked at them and said, this is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. Peter began to speak to him, look, we've left everything to follow you. We're poor. 
We've done what you asked. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there is no one who has left home, and this is what the rich young ruler doesn't get and what we have a hard time grasping. There is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters. There's a treasure I didn't even mention, family. Or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions. It's always a little, little fun persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. So why should we not accumulate uh, earthly treasure? Well, it's not a solid investment, okay? It fades away. Look at what he says. Do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. One of the reasons you shouldn't accumulate treasure on earth, it's not a good investment. It goes away. Um, They're talking about a silk in the Roman Empire. Silk is valuable today, I'm sure, but silk in the Roman Empire was worth its weight in gold. Okay? Silk was worth its weight in gold. Um, and yet it could be eaten by little larvae. Right? Whole fields of crops could be destroyed by little bugs. These tiny little things could, could eat away, could destroy this investment. Um, how many of y'all have checked your retirement accounts this year? I'm just saying, I know, yeah, Ronnie's never going to be able to retire now. Did you see all that he- earthly treasure just disappear? Just went away? Again, so the the question you might be asking for your, uh, me or hopefully Jesus is, well, how how do we accumulate? Okay, I get earthly treasure; it's a bad investment. It can go away. It can disappear. It can rust. Um, I, I will mention uh, one of these things is, you know, Jimmy. I don't know if you know him very well, but man, he hates to throw anything away. And this isn't because he's. I'm not saying this because he's materialistic. He just wants to use things well. And he's always coming to me with like first-gen iPads and being like, can we use this for anything? And I'll be like, hey, you can use it as a paperweight. Hey, can't can even connect to Wi-Fi nowadays. But that's everything in our world's built that way, right? Every, you get this thing and it's shiny. Remember when iPads first came out and they're all shiny and new and he loved them? And now you literally can't give them away. You can't hardly do anything with them. They're just filling up trash dumps. So how do we accumulate heavenly treasure? Well, there, these are some things that are mentioned just in the Sermon on the Mount that can lead to reward. We can suffer persecution for Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to, the rich, to his disciples after the rich young ruler? There's always, yeah, there's all this blessing with a nice side of persecution, right? So suffering persecution for Jesus, giving generous gifts to the poor. Uh, in, Matthew, in Matthew 6, it talks about fervent and sincere prayer leading to reward, humble fasting. These aren't exhaustive, but in other words, these righteous acts lead to heavenly treasure. So remember, the Sermon on the Mount, it's about this holy character that God's changing in you that's going to lead, the outcome of that will be righteous action. And that righteous action will lead to heavenly treasure. It will lead to heavenly rewards. So he goes on in verse 21 to say this. Not only do we not want to store earthly treasure because it's fleeting and easily destroyed, But he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Judaism, this is a quote from Professor Charles Quarles, so nobody uh, says I've stolen something. He says, in Judaism, the heart referred to the center of a person's existence, the seat of spiritual, moral, and emotional life. 
The heart was the source of a person's thoughts, desires, decisions, and actions. In other words, your heart, the location of your treasure, reveals your true identity. That's for Chuck, wherever he is. There you go. He's a Superman fan. So, the location of your treasure, that reveals who you are. That reveals where your heart is. Okay? And if all your treasure is earthly, that means your heart is here on earth. And that means your identity is wrapped up in that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we don't accumulate heavenly treasure, I'm sorry, earthly treasure, excuse me, because it's a sure loss and because it means our heart is in the wrong place. Now we go on in verse 22. He says, the eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. If then your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, this is a historically difficult passage to interpret. Okay, it seems kind of weird, but the meaning is fairly clear. The passage right before it, the verses that come right before it, and the verses that come after it have to deal with our perspective on money. So this surely has something to do with that. But what does it mean that the eye is the lamp of the body, and that if it's healthy, your whole body is full of light? Well, the word here for healthy in Greek actually means single or good. Um, the word translated diseased here is a word meaning evil. There's probably a kind of a double meaning here. But in, in Jewish writings, having an, an evil or bad eye is, is associated with greed or stinginess. Whereas having a good eye is associated with generosity. We can see that in Proverbs 22.9. It says, a generous man will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. The word here for generous is the word for um, someone who has a good eye. He who has a good eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. So it probably has to have, uh, it probably has the connotation of those who are generous. If you have the proper perspective on money, the proper perspective on earthly treasure versus heavenly treasure, and your focus is on serving God rather than money, your entire self is going to be good and healthy. If you can get this right, if we can have the proper perspective on this, on building up heavenly treasure versus earthly treasure, it's going to make the rest of life really easy. Okay? We're just going to be focused on God. Um, if not, if you serve money, then this is going to affect your whole self negatively. It's, this is perhaps most clearly described by Paul in 1 Timothy. He says, those who long to be rich, those who long for earthly treasure, however, stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils, right? The love of money is the root of all evils. This is very important for us to get right. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and they've stabbed themselves with many pains. Jesus goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's another giant either or, right? It's another either or distinction. You're either storing up treasures on earth or in heaven. It's almost as if that's restated here. You're either serving God or you're serving money. Materialism, which is what he's talking about, is idolatry. And I know that word idolatry doesn't mean a lot for us today. But that's the whole reason why Israel went into exile. Okay? Materialism is idolatry. If you think about it, it's elevating the things 
that creation has created <laughs> over the creator. It's elevating the stuff we've made that we know is just going to go in the trash dump one day over the actual creator. And it is idolatry. Now, study after study shows that the more things that someone has, the less happy they become. There are books written about these studies with titles including, listen to these, The American Paradox, Spiritual Hunger in the Age of Plenty. There's another one called The High Price of Materialism. And these aren't Christian books. These are secular books written by scientists who've done studies and then surprised and wrote books about it. Even a secular world can see that materialism has a negative impact on our society. So for the believer, not only is materialism idolatry, but it's not going to make you happy. How many of us bought something because we really wanted it, we just couldn't do it without it? Maybe we're adults, maybe we're teenagers, maybe we're kids and we wanted it for Christmas, and you finally get it, and then what? After maybe even that day, a few weeks, where's that favorite toy that you had when you were a kid? Do you even know where it is? It's in a trash dump somewhere. These things do not make us happy. And if you don't think that you or your family are very materialistic, see what happens around Christmas, right? So, as disciples, we want our hearts in the kingdom of God, so that's where our treasure should be. We should do whatever we need to do to get our treasures there. Jesus goes on to say this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. He says, therefore, because of everything we've just talked about, all right, because of that, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Now, just a minute. He just said, instead of accumulating earthly treasure, we should accumulate heavenly treasure. And because we're accumulating heavenly treasure, we shouldn't worry about our life, what we're going to eat or drink, or about our body, what we're going to wear. Wouldn't you worry less about your life on earth if you had a lot of earthly treasure? If you accumulated a lot of money and security, wouldn't you worry less? That's not, that's not what Jesus says. He says, if you have the proper focus, you're not going to worry about this stuff. And for them, worrying about eating or drinking or what they're going to wear, they actually had food insecurity. You know, they had a grain ship headed to Rome that sank, and there goes your bread for the winter. I mean, they really dealt with it. To put it in modern-day perspective, maybe we should talk about... Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped this. Let me read this. Look at the birds in the sky. It's, it's a similar idea. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? God takes care of them. Is he going to take care of you? Let's put it in today's perspective. Maybe we should talk about the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. I don't know if you guys survived it or not. You remember this? It was only a few years ago. Uh, people freaked out so much they bought all the toilet paper. The shelves were empty. You remember going to the stores for forever and there's, there's no, no toilet paper? Um, we might think we're, we're, we're above worrying about things such as food or clothing, but we did the same thing about toilet paper. So perhaps with the Sermon on the Mount, give me a little leeway, was given today, there'd be an added section. Look at the bears of the forest who do not hoard toilet paper unnecessarily. <laughs> Yet your heavenly Father provides leaves for them. Are you not more valuable than they are? <laughs> that is... <laughs> Just saying... All right. <laughs> and he says, and which of you by worrying can add even one hour to his life, right? I know people suffer from anxiety. I'm not diminishing that. But we worry about stuff that we don't need to worry about. And it doesn't do anything for us. 
Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They do not work or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, the richest dude in the Old Testament, in all his glory was clothed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? Panic buying shows our lack of faith. Okay? If you panic buy, you show your lack of faith. Look at what he says. He says, don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? How, we're, how will our basic needs be met? For the unconverted do what with these things? They pursue them. They pursue these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. What did he say about life being more than these things? Life is more than just surviving it. None of us are going to make it out alive. I don't know if you know that. But so far, death's taken everybody but Jesus and Elijah and Enoch, I think, if I got that right. Most people, all right? It's probably going to get you too. And if you spend your entire life just trying to survive it, what's the point? The unconverted pursue these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If we have that same mindset, if we, if we pursue these things the way the unconverted do, what we're doing is we're behaving as if there's no difference between a Christian and an atheist. How many Christians panic bought toilet paper and people thought, well, they're just like everybody else. They're scared, just like everybody else. They're panicked, just like everybody else. Do you worry about your daily needs? Do you worry about your job, your retirement? Do you worry about paying medical bills or, or affording college? That's what they worry about too. They pursue that worry. And again, God calls us to be good stewards. I'm not saying you shouldn't save money or plan for retirement. I'm not saying that you should just throw your money in a hole and hope that he takes care of you when you're old. God isn't calling you to be stupid. I'm not saying that. The question is, where do you feel, where do you find your security? Do you find your security in your bank accounts? Because again, I don't know if you checked your retirement account recently, your 401k, but it took a hit right? If your security is in that, you look at the recession or in 2008 or the, the Great Depression, people killed themselves. There's the guy who was the CEO of what, I can't remember what company it was recently, but there's, something was going to come out and the stock price was going to tank. Bed, bed Bath & Beyond he jumped out of a building. Killed himself. Yeah. So look at what he says. He says, but above all, don't pursue those things. Pursue his kingdom his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So then, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Notice God isn't promising that there won't be trouble. He's just saying today's got plenty of it by itself. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. The Talmud, which is kind of the hallmark of rabbinic Judaism, puts it this way. I really like how they say it. They say, care not for tomorrow's cares, for you do not know what a day brings forth. Perhaps tomorrow you will not exist, and then you will have cared for a world no longer yours. Take it day by day. You wake up, you pursue him, you pursue his kingdom, you live out righteous behavior rooted in holy character that shows the world your relationship with God. The question is, or the statement is, either you believe that God is going to take care of you while you are singularly focused on his kingdom, or you don't. It's either or. Either you believe that God is going to take care of you while you pursue his kingdom and righteousness, or you don't. And if you don't, just be honest about that. Go to him for that. Be like, Lord, I really don't. I'm scared about this stuff, and I'm 
storing up earthly treasure. I'm pursuing these things instead of pursuing you. Either we believe that God's going to take care of us while we do what he commands us to do or we don't. So what does it mean? Can I not plan for retirement? Can I not stockpile essentials? Those Twinkies that Travis has in that No, I'm just kidding. Can I not buy a generator? I'm not, I'm not saying that. But you need to realize your retirement can disappear. Your essentials can spoil. Your generator can run out of gas. The Lord's Prayer says this. Give us what? This day. Today. Our, our what bread? Not weekly. Not monthly. Not yearly. Not lifetime supply. Our daily bread. We must acknowledge our daily dependence on God. We must pursue his kingdom above all. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you have spoken to us. And I pray that you continue to work on us. And I pray that you give us the strength to do whatever you want us to do. However, we need to address our own materialism. However, we need to stop pursuing these things and pursue your kingdom. However, we need to stop accumulating treasures on earth and instead accumulate treasures in heaven. Father, and I pray that we all can understand that this is actually for our benefit, that treasures in heaven are far greater than treasures on earth. And worrying about the things of these life bring no benefit to us. And pursuing those things just make us the same as the unbelievers. Father, I pray that you change our character. You make us more and more like your son. You make us holier. And I pray that the righteous behavior that springs forth from that, I pray that that brings a heavenly treasure in the lives of all these saints that hear these words in an unimaginable way. Father, motivate us, inspire us, convict us. Help us to follow you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.